boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Binge Boys, we're back. Hi, I'm Hal Rutnick, and with me is Lon Harris. Hey, Lon. Hey, a simple statement of purpose. Binge Boys. That's Indeed. how we open the show. Hoot, hoot, Lon. Uh, hello to everyone in hashtag <laughs> Owl Nation. Where are my owls at? Where are my gahooligans at? There's a throwback. Lon, happy holidays to you. We took the Christmas holiday off. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, you did not. You're a real Scrooge. You did not want to. You you were writing me like literally like the day before Christmas Eve. Like, what are we? Re- when are we recording this week? What happens? Like, poor Adam who produces our show. I I know. I mean, I'm I'm glad to give Adam a respite, but you, I was I was riding like Ebenezer yeah. on Bob Cratchit. Try to try to Cratchit me over here. I was like, Hal, I only have one lump of coal left for this fire. <laughs> I, I don't care. You're gonna be cold. During binge boys, yet the fire lasted for eight days. It was a Hanukkah. It was a Hanukkah miracle. We were talking about this before the show. I, uh, I am a Jew. I'm not a big fan of Hanukkah. I have to say, I feel like it. I feel like as Jews, it's really beta of us to be like, oh, the Christians have a big end of the year winter holiday. We got to have ourselves a big end of year winter holiday, and then take this like kind of uninspired holiday and pretend that it's a bigger deal because we want we want our own christmas i just don't i don't what a what a what a poser move that is i hear you on but on the flippity flop side i loves me some presents and i ain't gonna turn down eight crazy nights uh, well the, the eight that's the big that's the biggest lie in all of judaism right there the the oh oh you guys only get one day of presents but we get eight yeah okay but the first six of those eight you're not scoring a touchdown every night no mom and dad parse that out like night number two you're getting a pen yeah you like I would say cumulatively <laughs> by the time a Jewish kid is done with eight nights you probably come out like eighty percent of where your your goyim friends have come out on their one Christmas. When I when I was uh, when I was a tot, I, I'll never forget that on the eighth day, I got the GI Joe aircraft carrier, and that was just one of the greatest gifts I've ever gotten. The, the final two days, parents do a big. I also think this is wrong. I, I have lots of Hanukkah thoughts. I also think big gifts should come at the start. Jewish parents are always waiting until the very end. We've already like we're bored of Hanukkah by a week in. You can't make the excitement last a week. Everything should come right at the top, and then it peters out. That's how Hanukkah should work. Once again, you and I are starkly opposed here. I I love just like just the anticipation of what's going to be next. Ah, uh, eight they were, These are children. These are children waiting until the Hanukkah starts should be enough. I think. You know, uh, I, I like riding those eight Screw days. Screw you, Judah Maccabee. <laughs> well. Lon, you and I will square off in a high-stakes dreidel game later for all the gelt. Terrible. Hey, I got you some awful, awful foil-wrapped chocolate. And if you win this game with the top, you get four raisins. Like, what was... I thought this was a holiday. Man, Lon, you are just... You are beating Hanukkah like a pinata today. I just don't... Yeah, I don't... Like, we have... There are there are holidays. Like, why... Like, there are legit holidays. We should just focus on those. And, like, I think Christians should just share Christmas. I think Jews at this point will leave out the Jesus-y stuff. We don't have to watch the end of the Peanuts special where Linus talks about, you know, the angel coming down in the manger. We could skip that part. But 95% of Christmas we could just do. It's fine. Like, I... Sam is not a, a, a completely at this point secular figure to me. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of Jews have, are uh, migrating to the Hanukkah bush, and I'm not talking about uh, manscaping, etc. Uh, <laughs> and I probably didn't even need to clarify there. No, nobody thinks that's what you mean. Um, yeah, my my wife is a Christmassy Jew. <laughs> yeah, I, and I and I fully respect the Christmas Jew position, which is like, look, this is happening now. We're here. You know, we're we're not Christian, get used to it, and we're just going to, like, embrace. I'm not an eggnog guy, but, like, embrace that whole side of things. Like, get a tree. That's not, who cares? Like, there was no part of our covenant, Abraham's covenant with God, that was like, we won't decorate a tree in our house once that should a be, year. 
That that should be like a like a new beloved holiday character, the Christmas Jew. Hello, my name is Richard. <laughs> uh, I'm a Jew who celebrates Christmas. I am your Christmas. I like that he's introducing. He's like, I will be your Christmas Jew this evening. I brought bagels. Yeah, here's potato. I'm like that. I see. There's one thing. The one good thing about Hanukkah: potato pancakes. We just mm. seamlessly integrate that. That's now the Jewish Christmas celebration. There it is. There it there is. There it is. We just with, uh, Santa's got to be sick of milk and cookies at some point. Make him a few. Make him a plate of latkes with a little applesauce on the side, you bastard. Delish. A, a little uh, applesauce, some sour cream. Who doesn't love that? It's perfect. Lon, I, I have to ask, sorry to, uh, I don't mean to derail here, but uh, there's some yard work going, yes, we, we could talk Judaism all day. There, there's yard work going out, going on outside. Can you hear, have you been able to hear uh, like a leaf blower or anything? No, no, I can't. Okay, just I can't checking. hear your just, yard work, but thank you for, thank you for jumping in. I can't Now tell we're all listening for headphones. your yard work happening. Also, again, with your, with your Ebenezer, like, get these people the week off, Hal. The world is at a standstill. Why? Why? Why are you? That's, why is your staff here today? That's my wife's department. Oh, jeez. Anyway, and New Year's is this week. Lon, you going to any super spreader events? Any super no. spreader New Year's parties? If you're listening, if you are within the reach of my voice, do not go anywhere for New Year's. Stay the fuck home, people. My God, no. I'm really, I'm legitimately trying not to even leave my like apartment at this point. Like I really am. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Same here. The fr- I, I left for the first time in days. That was to pick up Jersey Mike's for me and my wife. Yeah. Jersey Mike, if you're listening, uh, we'd love a sponsorship. <laughs> I, I always order mine Mike's way. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, my father, Frank Jersey Mike, did not start this business to give away free sandwiches. Oh, by the way, the CEO of uh, Jersey Mike's, not named Mike, that, you know, I'll, I'll die Wait, on that hill another time. But is that is that true? Yes. Is he from Jersey, though? That I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just I just remember during the pandemic, he was on a commercial. I'm less concerned like, with the Mike thing. I feel like if your name is Alan, but you go by Mike, this is not a huge concern. But if you're from like Connecticut and you're calling your sandwich place Jersey Mike's, now we have a big problem. Yeah, I I think it's kind of the thing where like the CEO of Wendy's is Dave, and uh, like it's not named Wendy. But that was his. It was his. It was his daughter, though, wasn't it? I believe it. So was. I think the, the original, the titular Jersey Mike, is probably in the graveyard. I would hope at some point there was a guy from Jersey. At that, that's all I care about. As long as at some point the guy who created the sandwich was from Jersey, I think we're okay. Otherwise, I feel cheated. Yeah, if not, that's a bigger scandal than Jared. Big problem. We have a big problem here. Lon, you and I, we we took in a lot of the holiday fare that came out on Christmas and around that time. Let's let's uh, jump right into it. What do you say? Let's friggin' talk about it, man. Let's get in there. Uh, Wonder Woman 84 has been dividing people, and it's all over yeah. the internet, all over Twitter, etc. It's available on HBO Max, Wonder Woman 84. Lon, do you want to start us off with some thoughts? Yeah, I, some of the discourse around this movie has become so strange to me. One of the things that I keep seeing a lot is, well, people are reacting negatively because they're seeing it on HBO Max, that we've all got our phones, we've all got Twitter open, it's just on a TV, you could pause it. If this was a big screen spectacle, the idea goes, we would have all been enraptured by it like everything else. And it's just because we're home that it seems small and unimpressive. And I think that's a load of horseshit myself. I don't believe that at all. I think a lot of people have been watching movies at home all along. Some of them are great. Some of them are terrible. We react accordingly. I, I, I think this is one of the more glaringly disappointing sequels, like, in recent memory. Like, maybe you have to go back to Pacific Rim Uprising for the last time I was this let down by a Independence Day resurgence, perhaps, is the level of disappointment here. I mean, this is a, I think this is an out-and-out bad movie. Right. Well, I agree with you absolutely about the comparison of watching it on the big screen versus watching it at home. I don't th- that it that doesn't hold any weight to me. I feel like I can discern the quality of a film uh, either way. I mean, there are certain things that, like, I think I, I, pro- I might have enjoyed Tenet 
a little bit more. I just I watched that this past week. If I saw it in the theater, could just some of the <laughs> we should talk about that because I've also seen that. Yeah, I, I didn't love Tenet, but I, I think that like some of the cinematography I would have enjoyed a little bit more in, in the theater. But Wonder Woman uh, eighty four uh, that didn't bother me. Here's the like my simple take on Wonder Woman is with your if you turn your brain off and go along for the ride. I didn't mind it. Moderately enjoyable, lower middle tier superhero fare. But when you but when you watch it with a discerning eye, there are a lot of plot holes and weird moments that make you question Wonder Woman's motivations, the filmmaker's motivations, the screenwriter, uh, a lot that of stuff. Turn, that, that, I hate that turn your brain off thing, though. Can we tell me? Can we pause there? Like that's not. Uh, no movie is so stupid that you should have to not think about it to enjoy it if that just means it's stupid like that doesn't that's not a that's not a good argument to be made on a movie's behalf that it's only good if you don't think about it at all like you can't help it that's what people do when you watch movies yeah i'll make the point that much escapism you're trying not to think hard you want to just go and let it wash over you and veg out but that's not the same as turning your brain off that's open that's being open to a fun experience like a movie should be able to be fun and escapist without you having to adjust yourself while you're watching it to accept it let me amend my statement with a little less critical thinking <laughs> wonder woman 84 is moderately I'll enjoyable just tell you what, it's that you shouldn't build a 150 minute movie that's not for small children around a concept like a stone that brings that makes wishes come true. What like what 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 is this Sharon Lois and Bram's Wonder Woman? Like like <laughs> what like it's like I, I I was thinking during the movie I was like this is the sort of story you'd come up with for your 90 minute body switch comedy. Not for your 150-minute epic action movie. And after I thought of that, I realized, oh, this actually is the plot of an 80s body switch movie. It's called Vice Versa. And Judge Reinhold and Fred Savage are both touching an ancient artifact when they make the wish that they could see life from one another's perspective. And that's what causes them to switch bodies. So when you are literally using the gimmick from a dumb 80s comedy that's just about shtick, for your Wonder Woman the movie. The 80s, a golden age of body switch movies. Right, but 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 those that, that's a clothesline plot. I, I can't take credit of this. I, I think I, for, for this, I, I saw a, a friend post something to it. But, okay, a stone that grants wishes versus five stones that can allow you to rule everything with a gauntlet. Think about it, Hal. Think, yes. think about it. For months, months around the release of Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, people were discussing the Infinity Gauntlet. Well, like, how, what, does Thanos' plan make any sense? Is it possible that he believes that he's on the side of right? How do all of these stones work? What what kind of sacrifice is required for this whole story? So I'm, I'm not saying it's it's a... All, all comic books are based around cartoonish stories, kind of goofy, over-the-top stories. There's always that kind of logic to it. No one's criticizing that. It wouldn't make sense for comic book movies to be about, like, high-stakes diplomacy. This isn't the Queen's Gambit. But the point that I'm making is you, you still have to invest the story with enough cleverness and originality and thoughtfulness so that there's something for us to grab hold to. And this idea The of superheroes magic, and the supervillains fighting over the magic rock magic did not bother me that much. Wish stone and we don't even understand how the rules work and it seems to keep shifting underneath our feet is incredibly flimsy. The Infinity Gauntlet's actually an example of obviously stones from space it's goofy. There's a there's a pulpy cartoonishness to it, but they really thought about it. They invested Thanos in his plan with a lot of gravitas. Nothing in this movie. Max Lord is not a Thanos type villain. He barely even makes sense. He's almost entirely unmotivated. Like wants to impress his son. Until he's the a very dipshit. end, we don't he's know a, anything he, about him. Yeah, he's a dipshit with poorly drawn motivations, but. Pedro Pascal played that well. I liked the villains. I don't think they're... I thought we spent a little too much time. We didn't have enough action set pieces in this movie. No, there's like two big action scenes. They're both yeah. kind of poorly done and flimsy. Kristen Wiig, I love that scene in the White House, where right before she became like... This is basically, part of the problem. 
She's like mid cheetah, but she's not. I like it's very hard to track stuff in this movie. It's all very vague and kind of thrown at you. And like I saw this on Twitter. We'll get back to your point. I'm sorry, but like I, I want to say at the end. Spoiler alert. At the very end, Wonder Woman holds Cheetah underwater and seems to electrocute her. And the whole time you're like, but why isn't Wonder Woman being electrocuted? Yes, because because Kristen Wiig, her character Barbara or whatever her name is, asked, wished for Wonder Woman's or wished to be like Diana Prince. So shouldn't they have the same powers? And I saw Patty Jenkins came on Twitter to explain, oh, no, it's because Diana is the daughter of Zeus. So she knows how to channel electricity through her body rather than just absorbing it as Kristen Wiig is doing. And it's a thing that she learned how to do. Because remember, Diana's like learning Zeus's powers in the movie. That's how she makes the jet invisible. So that, in Patty Jenkins's mind, is how Diana is able to take the lightning from the sky and push it into Kristen Wiig instead of get absorbing it herself. However... That's some pretty good hindsight right there. None of that is explained in the movie. So when you're watching the movie, it doesn't make any friggin' sense yeah, it's, at all. Yeah. I mean, that's one of several moments that made me take pause, again, when you when you stop and critically think about something for a moment, or not even stop, but just like, oh, that's weird. A few. I agree, Lon. I don't think it's this is great superhero fare, but I thought there was, you know, it was a fine diversion. It was fine escapism, but it was lower tier superhero stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think what's most disappointing about it is just how it's just it like it's not cinematic. It doesn't look cool. It's not fun. It's like the first Wonder Woman. This was made by a lot of the same people. And yet it really feels night and day like like that movie. Even if you don't like the third act of the first Wonder Woman, I think it's fine. A lot of people don't care for it. I mean, it was it was just a generic big bad, the David Thewlis character. Right. But do you remember that scene where she figures out that David Thewlis is Ares? She's standing in this, like, tower at an airfield, and she's inside the tower. And then the camera sort of pans around her, and we see David Thewlis is right outside the glass looking in at her. And it's this creepy, almost horror movie moment. And then she spins around and realizes he's there. And then suddenly he's inside the room with her. And it's this very effective scene. And it's just like a small moment, but it's cool. It's well filmed. It's interesting. There's like a an eye behind it. And someone was thinking about how to lay out that scene. And then, of course, you have that iconic trench scene. Yeah, the right. right. There, there's, there is nothing in this movie done, certainly up to the level of the no man's land World War One sequence. But I honestly don't think even that confrontation between Ares and Wonder Woman, like there's nothing in this new movie that I found captivating and visually interesting and compelling this time around. It just feels like tropes and tropes and tropes and more tropes and more goofiness and like a bunch of stories that felt like here's what the studio wanted to do and it just is a jumble. They're, they, they don't feel like they're brought together into one coherent whole. Yeah, no, uh, I agree. Uh, and there are too many things where I'm like, ugh, like, yeah, I it, it's, it sticks out like a sore thumb. So... Uh, th- there was enjoyable stuff, but then there's, I mean, here, this might be personal, but I don't need to see an action sequence that takes place in an 80s mall again. After Stranger Things and now Wonder Woman and then <laughs> the and then living through the 80s as yeah, well. I, I'd I, say, I think that might have been my favorite scene, though, just because it had a, it had a take. It was like, what it, that scene in particular feels like, what if this was a Wonder Woman to go along with like the Richard Donner classic Superman movies? Like what if there had been a Wonder Woman movie in 1984? It probably would have been like goofy and cartoonish and colorful and bright like that scene. And so I didn't love that scene. It wasn't like the greatest thing I'd ever seen, but I, I still felt like, oh, okay, I get what this is. I get what this movie is. And then right away they like abandon that and return to like the grim, dark Snyderverse. And it was like, okay, here we go. Never mind. Yeah, but I, I mean, just the novelty of like, oh, the 80s is kitschy and fun and the, the 80s mall. I, I'm just like, I, I feel like Stranger Things beat it to death with the Starcourt Mall. And they, now they really uh, do yeah, very I, little I, with the 80s in this whole movie. It's purely like a marketing thing. Like, there's no 80s music in it, there's very little 80s fashion. There's that one absolutely. The well, packs. you had that you had that montage of Chris Pine. Right, but it's like, it's so in the background. It's a, That's another element that feels like it was like on a on a notepad somewhere 
like, oh, what if this one's set in the 80s? And then they all just got jumbled together. None of it feels like that's what this movie is. Like, we figured it out. Oh, yeah, it was absolutely lacking as far as an 80s soundtrack. And the, and that's an era of epically good music. So that was a miss. And then also, the one thing that really stuck out to me, that moment where Wonder Woman, like she said, I will not relinquish my boyfriend. I will not renounce my wish and let Steve Rogers go. Steve Trevor. Steve Trevor. Steve Rogers is Captain America. Captain America, on, yes. Steve, yes, yes, yes. Steve Trevor go back. It's like, isn't she supposed to be, isn't Wonder Woman supposed to be the purest of heart and the best of us? Well, also, they don't even react to the craziness. Imagine you are dead and then you suddenly become conscious again and you realize you are in another man's body. Like, yeah. I'm not saying... They take that in stride. <laughs> you, right. I'm not saying he has to plunge into existential despair, but even the classic 80s body switch comedies would have had a few scenes where he's like, oh, oh, like he's freaking out. Like that's a freak out moment when you realize you're in another body. That shouldn't be possible. You would have a, a crisis over this. And literally he's like, oh, wow, this is weird. Like, should we make out and then take a walking tour of the Smithsonian? Like they right away are just like, let's go on a date. This is cool that you're back. It's all a little too convenient, and uh, they should have had it like Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. Patrick Swayze takes over the body of Whoopi Goldberg, But, right? like, we need that moment. Like, we need that, like, because I, I, everybody now is reacting on the internet like, oh, this is creepy and wrong that he takes this guy's body and he doesn't. Yeah, some people no are saying, oh, Wonder Woman uh, essentially raped this guy. Yeah. It's a little rapey, right. And I, I, I think that we're having that problem not because you can't do a body switch element in a movie like this, but because it doesn't feel right because they don't react to it in the movie. They're so eager to get on with the story that they don't give us that recognizable, relatable moment of the characters being thrown off. Why doesn't Wonder Woman get out and date? It's like they essentially make it like she she hasn't boned in 70 years. That's ridiculous. She's an they incel had, in this, basically. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that's stupid. Like, go to a singles bar. The 80s was a golden age of singles bars. You had video dating where you would record your dating profile on a VCR tape. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is another, this is a big problem with, I think, the movie. I mean, it's, it's silly, but it's a, it's a joke, but it's also a problem with the movie, which is, like, who is this person? Like, who is Diana? Like, she's not relatable. She she made a lot of sense and was very relatable in the first movie. I think they nailed that, like, she's an outsider. She's this wide-eyed naive who's from this island, and she doesn't get how the world really works. And she's discovering it with an open heart day to day. I think that totally makes sense. This one, like, ah, she's this, like, ancient love-struck, weirdo, incel, and, like, the first hour of the movie is just about how tough it is for her to make a friend at work? Like, what yeah. is this? Also, she's, okay, at this point, she's been off the island for 70 years, essentially, and she's been Wonder Woman all that time, one would think, off and on, you know, going back and forth between her alter ego, et cetera, and she's only learning, like, this is the first circumstance where she learns to fly. This is the first circumstance where she learns how to make something invisible other this, than... This movie is about her learning that cheating is wrong. <laughs> that's that's the lesson that Wonder Woman extracts. Yeah, and how does that power years, work, by the way? Oh, it makes no sense. None of the... The last hour... Like, I don't even know... If you haven't watched this movie yet, it may sound like a regular movie from our description. The last hour of this movie is just pure chaos. It's just... It's just madness. It make nothing makes any sense. Nothing links up to anything. But I mean, it's literal chaos. Like the world is crumbling and people are just running around like crazy. Yeah, here here's your drinking game for Wonder Woman. Watch it and every time you say, "Huh? What? Why? Or how does that work?" drink. And you will be drunk. You will be. There is a scene in this movie and then I think we should move on cuz it's fucking stupid. We don't have to keep talking about yep. this. There is a scene in this movie where it's after, so everyone in the world's wishes are just coming true at this point. Like, it's in the air. If you wish something, it happens. And a guy is, I don't know, he's at like a bakery or something, some kind of store, and he's yelling at the woman behind the counter, and she's like, 
I wish all of you people just got sent back to where you came from. He's Ireland. Irish, I'm presuming. And then we cut very quick. This is so fast. This scene is like 30 seconds. And then we look out the window and a bunch of cop cars drive up and start arresting Irish people on the street because of this lady's wish. That is confusing. First of all, horrifying. We don't have a moment to process that, wow, things have become incredibly dystopian very quickly. But yes. also, I explain to me the, the what's going on in the day of those police officers. Were they magicked from what they were doing to this street so that they could show up and arrest these people? Did they wake up knowing this guy was going to wish that and they would then have to arrest Irish people? It just makes no sense. You're watching this movie, like, trying to put together what you're even seeing, and nothing links up to anything, and nothing makes any sense. Yeah, oh, the wishes happen instantaneously. Which doesn't make sense. It, it, it's, like, it's either magic or it's not, folks. Also, I think it would have been funny if one person just like was like, when she said everyone had to renounce their wish, one person was like, uh, I'm good. I'm going to keep the Corvette that I wish I'm going to keep this 14-inch dick. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, career in porno. So- I didn't. I didn't dislike it as much as Lon. I thought oh, Christian Wiig and Pedro really? Pascal. By the end, I was mad. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought it, it had redeeming value with the villains. They were fun to watch, but overall, yeah, there were problems with this movie. And that is Wonder Woman eighty four. Let's move on to Disney Plus's Soul or Disney and Pixar's Pixar. Soul that you can let's, watch let's, on Disney. Let's Plus. let Pixar in there. Uh, you know, I. I, I had a I had an interesting I had an odd reaction at first to this movie. The first time through I wasn't sure how I felt about it. There was some stuff that really struck me as kind of off, kind of weird. I, I it was having some weird momentum kind of issues where it felt like it kind of took forever to like get going and give me my bearings, but I went back yesterday cuz I I couldn't so I kept thinking about it. And so I went back yesterday and I watched it again. And now I think I'm sold. I think they I think it won me over on that on that on that rewatch. And now I think it's a, it's a really good movie. It's very strong. One of the better recent Pixar's, I would say. I really enjoyed it, but here's the thing. I I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just a heartless piece of shit, but like, I I see people like posting things like, Oh yeah. When you watch soul, um, make sure there's a box of tissues nearby. I mean, I don't, I I don't, I, I don't cry very often if at all during movies. It didn't hit me like that, but I absolutely enjoyed it. I, I thought it was, I, I became a little dubious when it it seemed like we talked about this trope earlier. It seemed like, you know, it was basically a body switch movie. It is so weird that because these movies were not ever going to open on the same day. Like Soul and Wonder Woman 84 being like movies we think of together is a very recent development. It's just because they both happen to be like, oh, Christmas Day. That's when we'll dump these these on streaming. But they're very weirdly connected. They share this very odd fascination with, yes, souls jumping between bodies. I I thought it was beautiful to look at. The way they animated New York City was gorgeous. Yeah. Remember early Pixar, for, for a long time, humans were like, outside of their, like, go-to range. Like, if you remember the, the first Toy Story movie, they, they try to avoid showing you Andy and his mom and his friends. They hadn't quite perfected that uncanny valley, like, ability to bring human faces to life with their yeah, animation. Yeah, to give, the, like, the, an essence of, I mean, for lack of a better, humanity in what you're watching. And so to consider those movies and then now look at, Soul, which is believably gorgeously recreating not just New York City, but filling it with believably rendered, charming, fascinating humans who look the hustle and, and bustle, the traffic, the 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 energy of New York. And it's something that I think it's it's very rare. Like because even like The Simpsons, I'll take as an example. Like Matt Groening has a drawing style. And so everyone in Springfield, like there's various, some are tall, some are short, some are fat. So but they all look drawn by the same hand. Like it's all like this is Matt Groening's world that he designed. And then it's just filled in with different people. Soul feels like it's populated by a diverse range of kinds of people who would have been designed by, you know, like like the world. Like it doesn't feel like this is one style of making a person look. It, it, everybody's got a look, a unique look and, and design of their own. And it's it's mind-boggling that they were able to do this so many times over to create 
bustling barbershops or crowded city streets or subway cars that are filled with passengers. Like, there are some shots that are just, like, it's beyond. Like, it, the level of detail is staggering. Yeah, you light- mentioned the barbershop. Yeah, can't let that go by without mention. I thought that was just, that, that was such a fun scene and, like, a real tip of the hat to, you know, to the culture of the barbershop. Oh, uh, maybe the best barbershop scene since coming to America, and I, I count the, uh, you know, the whole film <laughs> series barbershop aside with ice cube also uh shout out to Chappelle show veteran donnell rawlings you, you remember that guy that comedian you know who that is yeah he was also in the wire he's the barber he's the voice of the guy who's cutting his hair in that scene awesome quest love is the drummer oh david Di- david diggs is in the barbershop scene yeah, as david well diggs is in there felicia rashad is the mom that was bugging me when i was watching it. oh wh- why did that bug you no, just because I knew I recognized his mom's voice, but I was like, who? And I knew Angela Bassett was the jazz, the saxophonist. So it wasn't her, but I was like, uh, who, wait, uh, uh, who? And I just like, every time the mom was, I didn't want to stop the movie and like look it up on IMDb. I was like sucked in. I wanted to watch, but I was like, it was really bugging me. Like I knew I knew that voice and I just couldn't figure out which, which actor it was, but it's Felicia Rashad. It's, it's, yeah, it's but, Claire um, Huxtable, everybody. Overall, I, I thought it was a, a you know lovely story and directed by Pete Docter, co-director, and there was a co-director they brought in. And I, I was reading that they had you know a brain trust of people of color and including the assistant director who they brought in to make sure that it the film didn't have any problematic tropes, didn't step on toes, and you know portrayal. like say having a black man voiced for a bunch of the movie by Tina Fey. Like what? A good, good to avoid pitfalls like that. Oh no, wait, they don't avoid that at all. Yeah, I mean, is that a digital uh, blackface? I, you know, it is weird. And, and and here's the one thing that I thought was odd about it. And I guess you could say this about Wonder Woman too. And its odd body switch element is that it, you didn't need to do it. It would be so easy. I love Tina Fey. I think she's very funny. She's great in the movie. But if you cast a black actor in that role. Then the, the there is this conversation doesn't happen. It's only because they insisted on casting a white lady in that role that now we're talking about how weird it is that a lot of the, and, and the fact that this is the first Pixar film with a black lead character. So the very first time they come to the plate with a black lead, they're like, "What if it was only Jamie Fox?" Some of the time, you're like, "Why can't it just be Jamie Fox movie?" Right, and I thought Jamie Fox was excellent. I loved um, like like. I, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Jamie Foxx. Like, I, you know, didn't like him as Electro. You and, you and Jay Fox uh, Personally? You and Jay Fox You're kind of on the outs right now. Like, look, it's up and down with me and Jamie. I said I wasn't going to get into it, but he's, uh, I, you know, sometimes I love him. And sometimes I'm like, oh, that brings a little bit false. But as Joe in this movie, yeah. like... I loved Joe. I loved the character. I thought Jamie, like Jamie Foxx had a level of just like earnestness and like, I don't know what it is, but I I just, and humor. I mean, he's a funny guy. He was on in Living Color, obviously, but. He's Wanda. I don't know. There was something about Joe that I just real. there was such humanity in in this portrayal. Uh, I I really loved it. Plus you're on the record that he should be spelling his last name with three X's. He's like, just two, Hal. And you're like, Three X's or we're in a fight. I mean, he and I go round and round about this. Real love hate between you guys. But yeah, I mean, I wonder if these these issues are people like looking to like like pin something on the movie or are or how problematic is this? Because there's also the trope where having a black character transform into a different creature. Yeah, I, I, which is like Princess and the Frog, of course. I mean, look, I, I think it's I think it's definitely worth bringing up. I don't think it's just people looking for something to complain about. I think it's an odd decision. And like I said, I think if you, instead of Tina Fey, if that was Aisha Tyler, we don't have a problem, you know? Like, that's it's only an issue because of the decisions that they made. So I think it's perfectly fair to bring it up. Having said that, it, it it does not really take away from my overall enjoyment of the movie, which I thought was, you know, very inspirational. It's actually successful at being inspiring and uplifting. So many movies try for that. And I really felt at the end of this movie, like it had a, a valuable perspective and a message to share. And it legitimately is inspirational and motivating at the very end. 
when he goes out that door and he's ready to face another day of life, you you feel it. It has that resonance. That's that's very hard to do. So to me, that's special enough that I'm willing to kind of like overlook some of the weirdness along the way there. Yeah, no, I like this. I like this movie a lot. Also, the score. We haven't mentioned the score, which is phenomenal. Trent, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did the score. Mm-hmm. Weird to say that Trent Reznor has now done a Disney Pixar score, but here we are, and it's fantastic. It's some of the best yeah. work he's done on any. The, the man who sings "I Want to Fuck You Like an Animal" mm-hmm. is now working for the mouse. Listen, very talented. <laughs> uh, but it was. I, I really. I, I enjoy. I enjoyed the film. I. I had some issues with the politics of like how heaven, quote unquote, worked, and there's no. We don't see heaven. The, pres- the great the great beyond could be read in a Christian context, but I don't think it has to be. Oh, well, wh- whatever it was. Yes, the afterlife and before we're life. Always, we're not seeing the afterlife. I don't think. My, my take on it is we're seeing the space. Oh, we absolutely saw the afterlife. That road up into, no, we're, that we're road up the, into gap, the clouds. We're, we're seeing the gap between Earth and whatever comes next. Whatever is the actual afterlife. No, no. That was literally the afterlife. The Great Beyond is like the next life or the next existence. This is the way station where they prepare souls to go to Earth or to head. This is like, it's like defending your life. We're in the like defending your life city, judgment city, I believe it's called there. And then where they go on the trams at the end is the afterlife. And I think that's By what, definition, that is afterlife. Well, now you're, yes, semantically, they're dead. So it's after their lives. But I'm not saying, but like- I think that's the that's they're not in heaven. That 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 would be you go to the great beyond and then you go wherever you're going going. This is like where they sort out all the this is the bureaucratic step where like they file your soul into wherever it goes and then you go up the escalator. That's it. He's only supposed to be there for a few minutes. It's like the ride from earth up to whatever the white space is. Yeah, but the fact that he was like able to finagle his way out of there, and then you had that one character who in the in the lost soul zone who was able to go back and forth between Earth and yeah, I didn't like that. The astral plane, uh, yeah, I, I I agree. Like it felt like a cheat. Like that was all a little wishy washy. It was like, what are the rules of this thing? And it's too easy to sidestep well, it. Well, it's not even that. I don't mind Graham Norton being able to go from Earth to the astral, whatever. I just thought it was, like, hacky the way they did it. Like, oh, they're hippies, and they're, like, meditating. Like, that's dumb. Like, have it have it be some kind of payoff. Like, I thought it should be something more fun, like, when we figure out who that person is on Earth or something. Having it just be a hippie is like, all right, that feels like, it's like, that's a that's an 80s joke. That's such a tropey, hacky bit. Yeah, and, and if he could do that, shouldn't he be living in Malibu, leading people, <laughs> leading rich people on, like, peyote <laughs> uh, vision quest retreats? I was happy that they did not give that role to James Corden. It seems like such a Corden role, and when you realize that it's not James Corden, like, a wave of relief washed over me <laughs> when I realized that this quirky British character was not being voiced by James Corden. Delightful. Thank uh, you. Never so, been so happy uh, to hear Graham Norton in all my life. Once again, Lon professing his hate for Corden. I hate you. But uh, yeah, Soul was, really it, and it did make you stop and, and think about enjoying the little things, just like the message of the movie. I think it rings clear. I'd say it's, you know, a, a notch below Inside Out, just as far as. Like but making, it's in that, to me, it's in that, it's in that inside out Coco range yes. of like, it's upper tier Pixar. Yeah. Very enjoyable, beautiful to look at. And yeah, soul on Disney plus when we come back, we're going to talk Ma Rainey's black bottom on Netflix. Lon. We both watched Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Netflix. Wow, some really strong performances. Uh, you could tell this is based on a stage play from the great uh, playwright August Wilson. Yeah, they don't uh, make the, a lot of attempt to cover the fact that this is based on a stage play. Like it basically like they the only other thing they could do is like bring up the lights at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> and have everyone take a bow at the end. I like yeah, they uh, do that move. A lot of a lot of movies based on plays try this move where over the opening credits is like the characters traveling to the room in which they'll spend the entire movie. And that's your way to be like, look outside, you're watching a movie. 
we're not fooled. That's that. You're not fooling us that easily. Yeah, I mean, and I will say you, you could feel it, and it was might have been a little bit claustrophobic at times, but I thought the, the performances were so good that, like, you forget that it's so stuck in one place often because you're kind of transfixed on Chadwick Boseman for one. This is a different Chadwick Boseman than I feel like we've seen before because he's just this, he's this live wire, unpredictable wild card who is really a damaged goods type character. And he's used to playing just such like as Jackie Robinson, Thurgood Marshall, and as T'Challa, he is the best of us. But playing this damaged goods, really vulnerable character, I thought it was really different, and uh, I was really struck by his performance. Yeah, I mean the, the the acting is the acting is very good. It's it's obviously like it's it's good, interesting material. It's it's a well done play. It, it, it's a it's a good film. I enjoyed it, but yeah, I I think that would be my main criticism is it really doesn't ever evolve beyond the staginess of. I almost would have rather just seen them perform it on stage and film the performance rather than even trying to fool me into thinking of it as a film because it's very it's not creative at all about like cutting from this one room to this room to this room to this room to this room and and we really we really feel it and so it kind of it kind of drags but I did feel like Viola Davis terrific Chadwick Boseman obviously it's 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 one of his better film performances I also thought Glenn Turman who was so great on uh, Fargo this season as Dr. Senator, he plays Toledo, who's another member of the of the band that Chaz was in. He's fantastic. He's a guy who he's one of those really interesting stories where he's been a character actor like my whole life who I've been seeing in things. And I mean, I just he was never... in The Wire. He was in uh, Bumblebee, Super 8. He's Billy's science teacher in Gremlins, in the first Gremlins, the original Gremlins. Billy brings Gizmo to school to show his teacher. That's Glenn Turman. Holy shit. This guy has been in SAG doing the damn thing for decades. I was a young child for that. He's like, and he's, because that's the role. He's in his 70s now, but he's like the young, he's the the cool teacher that Billy trusts. It seems like after years of just being one of these character actors who you're like, oh yeah, I know that guy's face. Oh, that guy's in all sorts of stuff. He's starting to get his due, That's and he's like in his seventies. Yeah, I know. It's like it took people until now to realize this guy was good, but he is like I think he might have been the one performance in this who really blew me away. And, and of course, it's setting up, uh, uh, you know, a blow. But like you, you're you, you're designed to sort of care about this guy who's kind of been in the background for the whole time. But um. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought it's a it's a very obviously that's what this is about. This is like let's film this play and give these actors this opportunity to really sink their teeth into these epic, you know, deep, thoughtful, fascinating roles. Yeah, and you know, obviously August Wilson is one of like the great playwrights talking about the black experience, the African American experience in America in the early 1900s with, you know, fences, jitney and and it's a chance to watch Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman and um, Glenn Turman. Glenn Turman and this cast chew the scenery. And I, I again, we're, we're kind of just echoing what we've said already, but they they knock it out of the park. I mean, Viola Davis is just immersed in this character, just from like you know seeing it's a, like this hot studio, the sweat on her brow and. Yeah, they're they're definitely doing the like it's like a hot house kind of metaphor, like a lot of trying to do the right thing kind of where it's like on the hottest day of the year and the hottest recording studio in Chicago. You know, they're doing that stuff. Uh, Coleman Domingo is the other actor I was going to note. He's on uh, Euphoria. He's the other guy in the band who's like the leader. He's he's the one who interfaces with Ma Rainey. You know, she's like his guy who's trying to like help the kid do his vocal part. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and it resonates not just, you know, the acting and everything, but just the story. And you see, like, I mean, not that it's a mystery to anyone or it, it, like it's not out there, but just how tough, like, the, the experience for the people of color during this time, even if you were at the top of your field, like Ma Rainey, just like having to 
bribe a police officer or not getting a square deal from the record company. I mean, there's a scene at the very end of this movie where Chadwick Boseman's character, he was a songwriter, and you see just how deceitful the record company is to this person of color and to go and just steal their music. And it's it's infuriating. But, I mean, it's August Wilson, and he is just one of the greats as far as bringing across you know, that experience, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. And yeah, I thought that really resonated. I didn't even realize before I watched this that I guess I'm revealing my like white, white doofiness a little bit. So I apologize, listeners of color, but I did not realize Ma Rainey was a real historical figure before I watched this movie. At the end, they show you Viola Davis, you know, her next to the real or photos, not the, the, the real Ma Rainey's long dead, but uh, photos of the real Ma Rainey and her band. And I did not even know Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was a real song. Like, I'm not really up on my history of the blues, I suppose. I feel like I had, I had heard the name. I kind of assumed. Uh... I, I thought it was like a, she was an amalgamation of various blues singers from the period. But uh, no, I think it's fascinating how he's taking this, like, this elements of very real, relatable history of the music industry and this moment in Chicago and, and even like the historical tension at this period between Northern and Southern black people, which I thought was really fascinating. Like that's something you don't really see explored from the black experience very often. So yeah, lots, lots of interesting stuff going on. I just thought that was a very interesting tension of obviously the, the Levy Chadwick Boseman storyline and a lot of the details of what's happening in the studio. Those are all invented, but the scenario, the the rough setup of what's happening, very real. Yeah. So I mean, so as as a film on the whole, it was okay. The performances just out of control. I thought the a different flavor of Chad, Chadwick Boseman than I remember ever seeing thus far. And yeah, well, he's usually got Viola that, Davis. He's got that regal bearing in so much, you know. Like, I guess he played James Brown in that not very good Get On Up movie. He's good. It's just not a very good movie. But yeah, we're used to seeing him play these figures with a lot of dignity and a lot of you know, like stoicism and you know, like T'Challa or like Jackie Robinson or whatever, or Thurgood Marshall. And so, yeah, seeing him play a person who's hot-headed and passionate and in the moment and not as carefully considered in his actions is and and really invested in damaged goods fatally flawed i mean he he has an amazing just striking monologue about his childhood that is just it'll it guts you i thought for most of the year delroy lindo for five bloods was was probably the shoe in for best actor but yeah i think i think he's got it this year yeah, me. I don't. I, I, how are how are people gonna? Who else are they gonna go? For? Yeah, we could be seeing a posthumous. Uh, I believe. I believe that's my. I'm putting it. I'm putting it on record, folks. Vegas. Lon's going to Vegas and putting big money on Chadwick Boseman for the posthumous Oscar. Get me a blade to the Mohegan Sun. And yeah, I agree. It would it would not be undeserved. So absolutely worth checking out. Ma it's Rainey's. Gems. It's an uncut gems reference. Everybody. What's that? Get me a blade. He gets her Julia Fox a blade to the Mohegan Sun. Oh, yeah. Get me a blade to Vegas. Exactly. Like, I'm putting you on a blade. You're going to go to the Mohegan Sun and better parlay. Oh, I think the sequel to Uncut Gems needs to be what she ends up doing with all that money. I'd love it. I'm Sign me up. I'm in. Yeah, right? Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, worth checking out on Netflix. Now, I know Lon and I both had a couple of quick recommendations or or critiques for you. Your, yours isn't exactly a recommendation. No, mine's another thing that I hated that I'm going to yell about. Oh, well, well, before, okay, before you go off. I'm about to go off. I, I just stumbled, you know, I was just scanning Hulu and there's a series from Vice, Vice TV, Dark Side of the Ring. And if you're a wrestling fan and or a true crime fan, this series, it, like, I had to just sit there and make good on the title of this podcast. I just binged. I just could not tear myself away from Dark Side of the Ring. And here's the thing. I'm a, you know, you've heard of lapsed Catholics and lapsed Jews. I'm a lapsed wrestling fan. I grew up a wrestling fan. I'm, you know, not as much now. I've, I've uh, drifted away. But, man, these stories so well-realized and tragic and compelling and done kind of like unsolved mysteries meets 
wrestling, just in kind of the recreations and how things come together with these stories. And they get a lot of classic wrestling insiders. I know uh, Chris Jericho is a part of uh, the series, and he's a narrator. And Jim Cornette, who's like done everything there is to uh, do in wrestling, and a lot of other familiar faces. I forget the guy who played the character Brother Love, but a lot of the the bookers and the and people who have worked behind the scenes and the writers, and they tell these stories. And some of the stuff they explore, like the Chris Benoit tragedy from about uh, 10, 15 years ago, the Montreal screw job with Brett the Hitman Hart. And you hear the, the blow-by-blow reactions from the people who, and, and it's, it's cool because the people who put it together, they're not making any bones about that, you know, wrestling is rigged and like what goes into all this stuff. But the, the, the inside behind the scenes of these tragedies. And it's kind of like, yeah, Unsolved Mysteries meets The Wrestler because they, like Mickey Rourke and The Wrestler, I mean, I, I think it's fairly common to know that wrestlers live this hard life. They get hurt and it's often thankless and they're often left destitute after being at the top of their game. And th- they don't pull any punches about that. And this is uh, as they might when they are faking one of their matches. And th- but th- this is really well done. And just two observations. There's the story about one of the most decorated families in wrestling history, the Von Erichs. So tragic. They had five, there was the father who was the patriarch. He was a wrestler and he had the iron claw and he was like basically a Nazi bad guy in the the 60s and 70s in wrestling. And then his kids, he had five sons. Four of them died tragically. And they interviewed the one who was left alive, Kevin Von Erich. And as I was watching this, my wife was like in and out of falling asleep. And she, at one point they said, and his brother was about to take the turn for the worst. And it was like the third brother that died or something. And she's like, she woke up and she's like, didn't they just say that before? And I'm like, sweetheart, there are five brothers, four of them died. A bunch of them took a turn for the worse. And it's really, it's, I laugh, but it was, yeah, sad stuff. And then also the story, the real life story, if you remember Macho Man Randy Savage, oh, yep. And Miss Elizabeth, sure. uh, that was, yeah, the, the real story behind that. And Lon, when I was a kid, I met Macho Man Randy Savage really? at Newark Airport. And I was a huge wrestling fan at the time, and I went up and asked for his autograph, and I asked him to sign it to Hal, and he was a real gentleman about it, and he signed it. And then I asked, hey, Macho Man, can I have Miss Elizabeth's autograph too? And he looked at me and he said, no, Hal. And I'll, I'll never forget that um, <laughs> Macho Man, <laughs> yeah, uh, Randy Savage, was, uh, he was- uh, Put you in your place. He yeah. put me in my place. He was that protective over Miss Elizabeth in real life. But yeah, the stories here, I mean, they're real. It's so watchable and really well done. And yeah, absolutely recommend Dark Side of the Ring. There are two seasons of it up on Hulu. And it's, man, you, I, I burned through them. They're, they're really good from Vice TV on Hulu, Dark Side of the Ring. Juan, now you you had a bone to pick. Yeah, I, I, I watched the first two episodes of this this Stand show, The Stand on CBS All Access. They're, they're taking back on the Stephen King, massive Stephen King novel set during plague times. I mean, what could be more relevant right now than The Stand? An epic novel in an America gripped by a pandemic where most of humanity has been wiped out and the survivors struggle to find meaning and purpose in a now-abandoned post-apocalyptic world. What could have more cultural resonance? And yet, this show, like, it's one of those adaptations where you... you, I've I've read and enjoy the Stephen King novel, The Stand. And watching this this show, I'm like, wait, why do I love this? What is good about this? It makes you forget what you even liked about the original. It is so dull. I, I, I don't even know how you would take this huge epic story because you've got so much ground to cover. You've got, you've got all of these characters and you've got to let us get to know who they were and then you've got to let us know what happened to them during this plague and then you've got to get them 
across the entire United States together so that they can go to Colorado and then Vegas because the good people end up going to Colorado and the bad people end up going to Vegas. And then they meet, you know, that there's like a confrontation, the titular stand, if you will. So you've got you've got all that. It's been called like an American Lord of the Rings, the book, because it is it's this epic journey that you've got to cover. And so anytime you're looking at a TV show that's like, all right, and we're going to do like nine episodes and we're going to do the stand, the whole thing. It's like, all right, how what's your approach going to be? How are you going to take all of this material and like shrink it down to a manageable miniseries size? And I, I am not sure what the people who made this show are thinking, but they're two episodes deep out of nine and they're like nowhere. Like they haven't really set up anything. And it's just like, wait, you guys are like tick. TikTok, Mr. Wick, like what the fuck is going on here? We've covered like two characters' backstories and gotten them to Boulder, but there's not even any larger context at all about what's going on. I'll give you one example for my Stan fans out there, but Hal, I'll explain it to you as well. So the 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 characters, you know, everybody's kind of all the survivors are kind of you're a good person at heart or you're an evil person at heart. And depending on on where you sort of come down, you have dreams of different people. Bad people dream about this guy, Randall Flagg, who's played by Alexander Sarsgaard. He's the one that's in Vegas. So if you're kind of bad at heart, you get called by him and you go to Vegas. The other side is Mother Abigail, who's played by Whoopi Goldberg. She's the one who appears in visions that good people have. Now, in the book, she lives in Nebraska. So the people who have visions of her see her at her farmhouse, surrounded by cornfields in Nebraska. And then they end up going to Colorado. But this is a TV show. They're running out of time. They can't cover all this. So they just start with Whoopi already in Boulder, and she's just calling people to Colorado. Fair enough, but they still have visions of her in the middle of a cornfield and just don't explain it. So it only makes sense if you've seen the book. If you see the book, they're like, oh, they're at her farmhouse in Nebraska. That's why it's a cornfield. But if you're watching the show, you're like, why is Boulder, Colorado in the middle of a cornfield? That ain't right. It's the Rocky Mountains. And like, that's what I mean. It's just like, there's no thought at all. They're just like taking pages from the book and just like putting it on TV. And like, you guys are not going to get there. Like, I, I hesitate to, I'm wondering what episode seven's even going to be. I wonder, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe they're setting it up for a second season. Like, yeah, it's like, how many seasons are you planning to make this? Because we're like, we're spending so much time and like during the plague and like, that's the inciting incident. But so far it's like most of the show. And I'm just like, wow, guys, I don't know. I, I ugh, oh boy. Wait, so in the book is Whoopi's character in nebraska the whole time no she starts in nebraska the first survivors who come to her come and meet her in nebraska and then after they've all had their initial planning then they collectively go to boulder and more people come to meet them in boulder and i understand you got to consolidate shit like that if you're making a tv show that's like that's too many locations there's only so much budget yeah you don't need to do that big move i understand starting her in colorado but why wouldn't you make the dream sequences set in Colorado so that we get that that's where they're going? Because otherwise, you're just like, what's the corn for? Like, why Why would we be in, what is the significance of meeting in a cornfield? So, Lon, the, the two episodes you've seen, where would you rank them on in the pantheon of every Stephen King thing Oh, ever? We're, we're very much in It Chapter 2 territory as opposed to It <laughs> Ooh, Chapter 1. It, it Chapter 2 long. How long was that goddamn movie? You don't want to go Chapter 2 stuff. Yeah, no, It Chapter 2 I think is still playing. I just gave up at some point. Like, I believe So I, long. I, that, that was like a three-hour movie. It's not just long. See, here's the thing. Like, a lot. Like, Wonder Woman 2 is getting this knock also for It's So Long, but like, long isn't necessarily bad they're just it's interminable it's like you're just waiting for it to end and it never ends it's like oh but we we got we got this what if he became a crab like monster like i don't care just wrap this up he's evil clown i don't need him i don't need him to become an evil crab clown that does that's not doing anything for me Although I like hearing, I, I like the idea of an evil crab clown, but not not when we're entering the third hour of the, the movie. The denouement of it, chapter yes. two. Lon, thank you for your stand on uh, the stand. I gotta you, keep you, watching it though, because Stephen King wrote he wrote the last episode of this, and it's a new ending that's different from the book. So I gotta I gotta watch it. 
I'm going to tough this out. All right, you're going to tough it out. You're going to tough it out. After after that diatribe, you just M. Night Shyamalan'd us by uh, saying you're sticking it with it to the end. Yo, have you guys heard this news about the honeybees disappearing? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first line of the happening. (laughs) Yes. I want to thank everybody for listening to Binge Boys. Hoot, hoot, everybody. I want to thank my pals at Starburns for having us. I want to thank... Adam Macias, our super producer, for smoothing everything out and taking out every problematic thing that Lon said. Just kidding, Lon. You have what? How dare you? <laughs> Those things are staying in. Uh, I want to thank Jason K for our uh, Binge Boys theme song, and I want to thank uh, my pal Lon Harris. Lon, please tell everyone where they can find you. Find me on Twitter at L O N S. That is the best place to keep up with everything I'm doing. And if you want to read my regular thoughts, still very angry, but a little bit more collected uh, on streaming shows, you got to sign up for the Inside Streaming newsletter that goes out five days a week. It is free, and you can sign up at inside.com slash streaming. Good stuff. Thanks, Lon. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Hal Rudnick. H-A-L-R-U-D-N-I-C-K. There's fun stuff there. And check out my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash chuckleface. Live comedy and stupid stuff on there on the regular. And please go to go to iTunes and rate us. Give us a nice rating. Give us a handsome. Don't be stingy with those stars. And thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye now. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch in the fuck out of shit.